0: Anybody who's ever heard of Vladimir Putin is likely to know at least two things about Russia's leader. He invaded Ukraine, and he presents himself as a real macho man. For years, ridiculously staged photo ops brought us images of a bare-chested Putin, riding horseback, relaxing on fishing trips, swimming the butterfly stroke, or just strolling along the riverside. Now that Putin is 70 years old, we're understandably getting less of his torso. But the Kremlin nevertheless relies on tropes of masculinity to validate the regime and its actions abroad, particularly in Ukraine, and when it comes to confrontation with the West. This gendered rhetoric resonates with Russians just as it does in societies and nations all over the world. The authorities and the public work together to manufacture consensus about who gets to be on top, who and what constitute threats, and what actions are legitimate. When it comes to the invasion of Ukraine, for example, the promotion and the draw of various anti-feminism and anti-gay narratives in Russia have facilitated the idea itself that an independent Western-leaning Ukraine poses an existential threat. This language has helped make plausible for Russians a war that was inconceivable until only recently. So what happens if you take away that rhetoric? Without the influence of gendered language on Russia's securitization process, What's left of Moscow's justifications for the war? Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On today's show, we're speaking to the author of a new academic article, about how feminization rhetoric helps legitimize Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Before jumping into today's interviews, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from people like you and in our international audience to sustain our everyday operations. Millions in Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. Our team delivers Medusa's most important stories in English, and we reach thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with our special English language newsletter and podcast. So please visit our website to make a one time or recurring donation and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. Okay, let's get to today's show. Dr. Lisa Goffman is an assistant professor of Russian discourse and politics at the University of Groningen and the author of two books 2017's Security Threats and Public Perception Digital Russia and the Ukraine Crisis, and the forthcoming book. Everyday Foreign Policy Performing and Consuming the Russian Nation After Crimea. Earlier this week, very recently, just a few days ago, the academic journal Media, War, and Conflict published Dr. Goffman's latest article titled, Damsels in Distress, Fragile Masculinity in Digital War. The rest of this podcast episode, the rest of today's Naked Pravda show, is our conversation about this article. But I will first read the abstract to give readers some context. Now... If this feels a bit dense or too scholarly at first, please hang in there. I'm not a professor, so I did my best to drag Lisa down to my level. To our level. Okay, here's the abstract. The Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, 2022, was a culmination of anti-Ukrainian rhetoric that Russian political elite and state-controlled media have been promoting at least since 2013. Apart from accusing Ukraine of being a neo-Nazi state Pro-Kremlin commentators have espoused a heavily gendered rhetoric describing Ukraine as a loose woman in need of saving by its older brother. Gendered discourse was instrumental in Russian foreign policy, not only through aggressive masculinity, but also through femininity. The latter, in contrast, sought to downplay the aggressive masculinity associated with fascism and consequently diminish Ukraine's agency and status compared to Russia. This article offers a taxonomy of feminization rhetoric that shows how different types of gendered constructs influence the success of the securitization process, drawing on empirical material from Russian social networks during the first war in Ukraine in 2014 to 2016. This article argues against gender's silencing role, but instead its central role in influencing every stage of the securitization process. Moreover, the author shows how feminization rhetoric paved the way to the legitimization of the current war.
1: All right. So, the way I was uh, looking at it, I I was trying to see why uh, a lot of social media users were so uh, obsessed with gender. And I saw that gender actually came out in a lot of different ways, and the three main avenues that they used gendered rhetoric in the way they discuss they were discussing Ukraine was well, there's the first division is obviously threat or non-threat. So, as we all know, femininity can often be considered a threat, so If it's um, a woman that is too politically active or she's a politician in the American context, some people might remember castrating first ladies, tropes that were used by the Republican Party in the 90s uh, during the election campaign of Bill Clinton. So, this kind of threatening femininity when women have too much political power, this was also a very common narrative during the suffragettes protests back in the beginning of the 20th century when you had a lot of caricatures of supposedly very ugly women who just wanted to have political power because there was nothing else for them in this life. Mm -hmm. And this is actually, this kind of narrative hasn't really changed that much uh, over the years, and it still remains quite prominent among uh, politicians across, across the board, so to say. And another issue here is obviously, it's not just the threatening femininity, but it's also the adequate amount of masculinity as well. So it's also important to be the real man. What does a real man supposed to look like for example how he's supposed to behave and this amount of maleness is critical for a lot of people again and not just in Russia specifically but also in the US you might have also noticed all of these jokes about Donald Trump having small hands or big hands like this is pretty much this obsession with the amount of masculinity um, a man or especially a political leader is supposed to have so of course social media users knowing knowing them, are also obsessed with this kind of, with those kind of ideas. So obviously they they start to compare who looks more manly, who is more the man in the situation, does the man ride the horse bare-chested or does he not? So this is the kind of obsession with the maleness and like the adequate amount of maleness is something that not just the political leaders have in uh, many authoritarian societies, but also a lot of people who want to be adjacent or want to be included in that perception of maleness because in a lot of cultures being male is obviously more preferable it means that you are in control you're dominating the situation so obviously you want to be adjacent to that maleness so that's why you want to have you want to belong to let's say a country that has a big nuclear button or you want to be part of a country that behaves in assertive way, for example, which is, a, again, a trait that is associated stereotypically with a male actor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, then, if we talk about this kind of binary, you either can be a, an assertive, rational man, or this uh, emotional femininity, you also have something in between. And this is, again, this, is, this makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. So if you have, let's say, a woman that is acting too politically, active, then this is not uh, a proper amount of femininity that this woman has. And then you have also men who, uh, let's say, are feminine or they do not behave as some cultures mandate men to behave. And that's why that also makes it somewhat dangerous for the political culture. And again, we can see that a lot uh, in the conservative party in the U.S. where they're talking about like, if you don't eat meat, then you are not uh, a real American. You cannot represent Americans because real men would supposed to be, you know, meat eater. And uh, if you're a vegetarian, I think you are not a real man, so this kind of different markers of masculinity, if you don't take all of the boxes, then this becomes a, sort of a danger to the society because if this gender pyramid sort of falls apart, then what is left of society nothing so this is even framed often as an existential threat to society and that's why again a a lot of this moral panic about trans people for example this is this is why it works so well because. They're trying to play on this foundational, what's, what they see, or what they're trying to frame as foundational markers and structures of society.
0: How all-encompassing do you think the gendered rhetoric is? Because in the, in the article, you write that, um, that describing objects or really, in this case, you know, countries, people, whatever, whatever your, your adversary is, I suppose, or just anything. Describing these objects as female, or as a child, are both examples of feminization. And you you, you cite the Save the Donbass Children meme. And later in this, in the article, you write that feminization often equals devaluation, but that it can also equal homosexuality. And so, like, how broad is... Fe- like, What isn't feminization? How big is this concept? Is, like, this the base of all political rhetoric or, and like, like you know, how, how big are these ideas, I guess?
1: Well, I think that what I was trying to show in the article is that ultimately we're trying to create a, oh, not we, of course, the authoritarian leaders. <laughs> I'm not trying to create that. I'm trying to point it out that uh, mm-hmm. the authoritarian leaders are trying to create a hierarchy. And the way you build that hierarchy, and you maintain it, obviously. Is also you need to put something that is more valuable on the on the top, and then something that is uh, submissive on the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. So in this hierarchy, it's well two things are usually very helpful to create that hierarchy: use racism or use gender. So the more convenient thing is, of course, gender because most people are familiar with it, with the concept somehow, and they are trying to um, again uh, see what is actually more valuable or less valuable. And especially when we talk about very uh, stressful crisis situations like wars, we always, a lot of people in this kind of very stressful situation resort to binary thinking. And then you need to think, okay, fight or flight, for example, right? And then you have, of course, you need to fight for something, but then you also need to protect somebody. And that's why in wars, we often see the posters where you have women or children that are supposed to be saved. So the so-called damsel in distress stroke. You're supposed to save somebody, so you need to step up and be the man to be saving these people, women and children specifically. And another issue here is, of course, racism. So uh, when we go back to the uh, discourse of colonialism on the 19th century, for instance, we see a lot of the discourse is actually framed in very family terms. So we see um, a lot of colonizers talking about how we need to civilize somebody. We have a mission to civilize those, you know... uh, stupid underdeveloped people so to say and then uh, they also talk about the garden and the jungle. Abso- oh, oh my god, don't get me <laughs> started on that one. We actually we just I just used that example with my students about the the garden and the, and the jungle issue. So this is racist of course <laughs> because there's a lot there's a very rich tradition of discussing again we're talking about binaries somebody's civilized somebody's not civilized. A lot of that rhetoric especially if you take a look at the British colonial rhetoric, French colonial rhetoric, they all talk about how they're the father trying to sort of educate the children, you know, that are not evolved yet, or they need to educate them to bring them to the same level of civilization that they are. Those family metaphors are all over the place. And that's why this kind of civilizing mission is really replete with all with all those comparisons of even some sometimes those are, oh, let's liberate the women or let's rescue the women of the Middle East, the, ve- the poor ve- veiled women of Middle East. So again, like this Family or gendered dynamics are all over in this, in, in the colonial discourse as well. So that's why it's um, trying to make or to make somebody seem as less capable as not having agency right. and not able to actually control their own life that needs some guidance from somebody else.
0: So it's not that gendered rhetoric is like the only binary out there, it's just one of the more evocative and, and common among authoritarians. And maybe everybody, I guess, anybody yes. trying to enforce hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay.
1: But racism is also very important, of course. Like you in, 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 right. in order to enforce some kind of hierarchy, you need to kind of press all the buttons, and racism is obviously uh, another very effective tactic to use.
0: Yeah. Did you also notice that in your study of the anti-Maidan contactor group? And we'll get into the methodology a little bit later. But were you looking specifically for gendered rhetoric, or were you looking to see what are the what's the hierarchical? language being used, and I'll, and I'll focus on the one that's most dominant, or did you go in looking for gendered stuff?
1: At first, I actually was looking to references to the Great Patriotic War, because that was actually the focus of my uh, study initially. Mm. And uh, I was actually trying to see how the memory of the Great Patriotic War is being instrumentalized by anti mandan users in order to justify the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine in 2014. So this is actually originally what I was looking at. But then I noticed that a lot of this framing that used the Great Patriotic War also was trying to use other types of narratives that often included this gendered component. And of course, anti-Madan is a a very (laughs) racist group. And so they had a lot of very dehumanizing rhetoric. So uh, some of the, you're probably familiar with the way some animal comparisons that were very common and everything else. This is in some ways, we can also see that as an attempt to create a hierarchy. If we are people mm-hmm. and those those people are animals means that we are superior to them right. in in many ways. So this is something that was, for instance, used during the Obama presidency
0: so this is this stuff is used to I mean to, you're we, we're talking about how this binary thinking is used to justify basically aggression or yep. authoritarianism. Yep. when you're responding to authoritarianism or fighting against it. Is there also binary thinking? Is that does that exist in any existential crisis or is do you not need linguistic tropes there? It's just self-evident that if you're being attacked then you're it's automatically existential. You don't have to re- rely on rhetorical tricks or is that not the case? Do you, do we see these binaries among the victims essentially, whether in this case, you know, I guess it's Ukraine or in American talking points or something like that?
1: I think that on the other side, we usually see the attempt to push back against those binaries and show that it's actually not the the world is not black and white. It's not as simple. Mm-hmm. And the uh, thing is that again, this dynamic that I'm describing is related to securitization, which means that you're trying to present something as a matter of security. Something is supposed to be an existential threat. And this in this does kind that, of does dynamic, that imply?
0: Does that like does that assume that whatever the issue is is not actually existential? That like that they're making it up essentially, or yes. is this? Yeah. It's all like that's that's the assumption. Is this not actually existential? Yeah. So this is. So are you are you making a normative assessment there? You're kind of stepping above the people that are having the conversation and saying, well, actually, they're this is they're just they're playing games here. It's not really what they say.
1: Yeah. So what I'm trying to show is that they're trying to press certain buttons to make the audience believe certain things. For example, we know that talking about Great Patriotic War in the Russian context is a very effective rhetorical mechanism, Mm -hmm. because that would resonate with the majority of the population in Russia. So that is a very effective mechanism to use in order to persuade somebody. And this is uh, what I'm trying to expose this kind of dynamics. If you're trying to represent something as a matter of security, especially as a matter of an existential threat, that is supposed to make your audience of this pronouncement much more susceptible to fear. So they're supposed to get into this fight or flight mode. And then they will not reflect too much about what do you actually what is the person's trying to deal with you. So you're going into the fight of flight mode and then uh, you're not necessarily reflecting on what kind of buttons are being pushed so to say. So I'm trying to break down this rhetoric and show how it works. Mm-hmm. And by showing how it works, you're also kind of deconstructing the whole narrative and showing that maybe this is not an existential threat. I'm not actually saying, I'm not necessarily passing judgment on it, but I'm just showing how narratively it works if you represent something as an existential threat.
0: And do you think that in the case of Ukraine, I mean, I know that you're you're looking at at this Contact group anti anti Maidan. Yep. Now, maybe this is beyond the scope of the essay, but just generally, I'm um, wondering how you feel. Do you think that the bellicose bellicosity? I don't know what the word is there. Bellicose. Well, they're just, they're just the, the whole vibe of uh, <laughs> wanting to have this war. Do you think that's driven by the political elite or is there is it a grassroots thing? I mean, it seems pretty clear that it's not, most Russians did not wake up one day and decide they wanted to invade, but obviously there are, you know, kind of, there's this like war party among the elites, but then there's also, you know, these, these I mean, and a lot of them are probably on the anti-Maidan community, these kind of like, these I- ideologues essentially, whether they're they're Duganites or or just sort of random internet edge lords, or whatever. Who do you think is advocating or leading the way on this? Like, is who's promoting it the most? Where does it start? Check check under the egg. <laughs>
1: um, it's hard to say. And the thing is that obviously there is quite a bit of uh, culture. Like we 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 do have a lot of this heritage of the sort uh, of I would say an ethnic hierarchy uh, that was built in Soviet Union as well. So. You have this, let's say, some people had their own republic, some had uh, uh, like an oblast or some had a cry or some had, you know, an autonomous region or something like that. So there was also a sort of implicit ethnic hierarchy in Soviet Union that uh, we're still sort of uh, living through today, the, the remnants of that. And right. uh, even though the official narrative was obviously the friendship of the peoples and everybody's brother to each other, And everything like that, again, brother, not sister, as uh, the gender also plays in here as well. But the remnants of that imperial thinking also is still kind of runs in the society in, in many ways. So in a way, it was easy for the government to whip up some of that imperial sentiment in certain groups. And we do see there is definitely a war party in the Russian society. There there are people who support the war. And anti-Maidan over the years, I've seen people advocating genocide for years. So this is not something that yeah. came out of nowhere.
0: And this is like obviously a conversation now, especially regarding like the war correspondents and the bloggers on Telegram and how they're they're ready for like a wider war than the Kremlin seems to be. And there's a lot of conversation about, or you just sort of see analysis and op-eds and Tweets and whatnot of uh of people saying, Oh, well sometimes it's described as kind of Putin has, has let the genie out of the bottle or something and he has to now he has to deal with these they're not always loyalist, I guess is the idea. Like they're they're driven by this whether it's an ideology of like rebuilding Russia in a certain image or just conquering Ukraine, but that now like this is like an independent force almost, you know, civic force that he has to deal with that's different from the opposition. And I'm wondering, did you get that sense when looking at it? anti-maidan of like oh these people are kind of a force unto themselves or i think you mentioned earlier in this interview that that a lot of people are eager to be adjacent to or belong to the conversation that's initiated by the authorities like did you see them more as sort of chasing putin's tail being like oh we want to be part of your cool idea here or is it like putin get off your ass and you know do the invasion we're ready for it
1: I've seen all sorts of things over the years. I have to say because I've been monitoring this group since two thousand thirteen. uh for, sorry, fourteen. So uh, I've for, seen, for your sins, yeah. Yeah, I've seen all sorts of re- uh, all sorts of rhetoric uh, uh, types of rhetoric there uh, over the years. And thing is that, especially in two thousand fourteen, there was way more division over what Russia is supposed to be. So there was obviously white supremacists there as well who were totally excited about shedding some of the ethnic republics, let's say, and then just having the the pure Slavs joining the group or Stop feeding caucuses was an issue at some point as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of uh, white supremacist current was definitely very prominent in 2014. But as you probably know, this was also the time 2014, 2015 was the time when the Russian government specifically targeted neo Nazi and white supremacist groups because they were kind of going way beyond yeah. the Kremlin policies. So they were like pro-Kremlin, but too much. So they were they were going way much further at that time. But frankly, what right now what we can also see in anti-Maidan is is that they're they're kind of on the, on that uh, level in many ways. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that they're again like anti-Maidan is also not this one monolithic group. So they also have different ways of voicing their support for the regime. And they uh, sometimes the regime sometimes they're unhappy that the government is not going far enough. And um, yeah, so there are also people who were uncomfortable genocide. And there are people who are in the same group. So I think that, I guess that the main difference that they that they had there in Antimadain is that they were trying to justify it in certain ways. And I'm uh, I could also see some uh, some evidence of well involvement of um, bots in in the group as well. And especially given the very uniform messaging after the uh, 24th of February 2022, I could also see that there was some evidence of uh, sort of trying to bring the messaging. In line with the with what the Kremlin was saying at the time. So, for example, on the 24th of February, they posted this big Z manifesto about like we never started the wars, but we will finish them, and like right. uh, we're not, you know, giving you know, we're not giving up on ours. So this this kind of stuff was very much in line with the official rhetoric at the beginning of the war.
0: How representative do you think that this contacted group is? Like, how did you decide to study this single group? how generalizable do you think your findings are here
1: well um to
0: the to the rest of i guess well let's say to the rest of internet culture but then, and then also i'd be interested to know how much you think internet culture is reflective of like something in in the real world
1: that's always like the main question that uh, uh researchers of digital humanities ask like oh can you what's the what's the actual difference between online and offline and always we usually say uh we, we don't necessarily know. Uh-huh. And um, my, fo- my, uh, my focus actually at the beginning was I, just, I was just wondering how the pro-Kremlin side justifies themselves. So we saw a lot of research, especially I think there was a bit of a bias in terms of Russia's scholarship in general. Most people were interested in the oppositional narratives. And I was like, yeah, yeah I, it's super interesting, of course, but I also want to see what the pro-Kremlin side wants to say. And now it's, of course, very relevant how they justify themselves. So at the time, I would say that in 2014, especially after the annexation of Crimea, the anti maidan was way more representative of the general mood in the society than it is now, because right now they have moved way beyond uh, the sort of the benchmark of, yeah, the greatness thing. Because
0: Now they're like, let's do genocide. Yeah,
1: exactly. So uh, in in 2014, they were less focused on that. In, In 2014, they were more about, Oh yeah, Crimea is ours. Uh, Russia yeah. is great again, you know, and obviously in more obscene terms. But that's pretty much sure. was the gist. And right. now there, a lot of them are straight up advocating genocide. And the thing is that the reason I focused on that group was just to uh, not only to try and understand how that is possible and how they're trying to justify all of that, but also at that point it was. More of a mainstream position, actually, because as we know, we don't know how, obviously, how accurate the public opinion polls were in 2014, but I would probably agree that the majority of Russian society at that point, at that point in time, supported the annexation of Crimea. So at that point in time, it was not a controversial point as much. I think right now the, the ambivalence is much greater, and that's why... I can also see there's actually less activity in the anti-Maidan group. So obviously, the activity also fluctuated a lot in 2014, 2015. They were very active. Then the activity died down, maybe related to the Minsk agreements, and then obviously now they picked up the activity again. Right. I could also see the fluctuation in membership over the years. So uh, again, the the max, the maximum of their membership was around 2015. They had 550,000 people, and then it dipped down to about four hundred thousand thirty And then it kind of climbed back again to about 500,000. But I I wouldn't make any claims about how representative that group is. I'm just trying to understand how one specific segment sort of justifies themselves. Mm -hmm. That was my main focus.
0: Okay. Now, if you take away either the promotion of by the, the state authorities, let's say, or just the broad appeal among internet users and potentially the general public, of these anti-gay, anti-feminist, feminizing tropes and narratives. Do you think the Kremlin would still be able to sustain public support or even, you know, passive support, let's say, for the invasion of Ukraine or does the whole thing collapse without this kind of gendered rhetoric? Like does it rely on that or do you think that there's another hierarchical form of rhetoric that's just waiting there to step in or do they need without this gendered stuff? They just, they can't do it.
1: I think the gender stuff definitely reinforces the imperial mindset that uh, Putin is trying to tap into because this kind of hierarchy also exists in the Soviet Union. You had like, so the mother Russia, then you had the the small Russia or the white Russia. They're obviously supposed to be subordinate to the big Russia, right? And gender hierarchy is actually supposed to maintain that and help maintain that hierarchical position. So. If you pull out the gendered hierarchy, the whole hierarchy becomes much more wobbly. Mm-hmm. And I think that this conservative turn that happened in 2012, around the time we had the, the Pussy Riot trial, you had the Dima Yakovlev Law, you had the ban on propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations. So all of that stuff actually was building or kind of trying to resurrect, I would even say, some of the Stalinist understanding of the gender order because uh, Stalin was actually the one that uh, introduced the uh, criminal punishment for sodomy. So yeah, sort of trying to latch on to this vague memory of um, homosexuality being a criminal offense is something that was probably quite effective. And again, if we take a look at the public opinion polls at the time around the Pussy Riot case, for example, a lot of people were on board with the the fact that they got a two-year prison sentence. And I'm not sure that there was such a a massive public support for the for the propaganda of the ban on propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations. But at the time, the way it was phrased, it was again the same damsel in distress trope because it was a ban on propaganda among minors, so helpless children who are supposed to be protected from evil Western propaganda. So this is again the same trick that uh, that is used to try and protect somebody. This kind of threat existential threat to the future of the nation the small little helpless children so this was exactly the same trick that was um, used um, that was used now
0: is this strictly a tool or is it a is it a sort of self-sustaining ideology like would the Kremlin do you think the Kremlin or the or the Russian political elite the authorities would they even think of Ukraine the same way as something either to fear or that needs to be dominated without this gendered rhetoric without these like these tropes that we've been discussing? like Is that is that leading them to even perceive things this way or do they have their own reasons for doing it, self-interest and so on, and then they just use this rhetoric to achieve their ends?
1: I cannot get into the heads of uh, Russian political elite, but I can hypothesize. What do you think, We're all in hypothesis. our big armchairs. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, so what I'm trying, especially if you take a look at a lot of Putin's rhetoric and a lot of his associates, I, I guess, Uh, you Mm -hmm. see a lot of the references to um, prison language. That prison language is extremely hierarchical and extremely gendered. So obviously, this kind of idea of the hierarchy in prison is vital. It's existential. So if you're on top of that hierarchy, it means that you survive prison. And this very conscious references to prison lingo and prison vocabulary makes me think that they actually think in those categories. They actually see the world in this very hierarchical gendered pyramid where real men are supposed to be on top and then those who are not on top uh, would be dominated or would have to submit to those that are on top. So this kind of references to prison language is, for me, very indicative of the fact that they actually do think of the world in those categories.
0: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard from Dr. Lisa Goffman, an assistant professor of Russian discourse and politics at the University of Groningen, about how gendered rhetoric influences Russia's securitization process and the ways people use it to justify the invasion of Ukraine. Thanks for tuning in. On future episodes of the show, we'll be discussing the impact of sanctions on Russian commercial aviation, the future of Chechnya's dictatorship, and more. See you next week.